Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and this is a follow-up discussion with the oh-so-patient Michael Strong. Hi, Michael. Hey, Steve. Great to be back. <laughs> Thanks so much. We've overcome a few technical difficulties here. I really appreciate your getting back on the phone with me. Um, after our interview, some things occurred to me that I didn't really dig down on that I, that I wanted to be able to with you, and you graciously accepted doing a bit of a follow-up conversation. There are three, three things I want to talk about, and I'm going to, I'll explain them right off the bat so you can decide how much time you have and where we go. One is, I realized afterwards I didn't really get a good description from you of how you hold a Socratic practice session or dialogue, right? Um, maybe some tips or hints or ways of thinking about that, especially because I think you have some, some ideas that might counter some of the... Um, more commonly held assumptions about those kinds of um, uh, dialogues or practices. Mm -hmm. And then I wanted to ask you about the uh, ways in which we have to overcome cognitive traps and the role of education in thinking about how we, we raise our thinking and have a better understanding um, and and how we have a very rich heritage in this country, in the United States at least, uh, of um, systems that are intended to prevent kind of common cognitive errors. Like we have a jury system and we have a balance of powers. Uh, and, and how much of recognizing that we need to do that is involved in sort of higher level thinking. And then the third is kind of a, um, a courageous area which is, is there a connection between the lack of that kind of thinking or opportunities for that kind of thinking in education and our current um, lack of political awareness or will? And this really struck me during the debates because it felt like the most important questions actually weren't being asked of the candidates. And I wondered if, that, if we can actually make a tie there to um, changes in education. And, and that may be too strong. A, a proposition, but um, let's start first maybe with the practices. Can you talk a little bit sure, about sure. sort of how you see, how, how you encourage people to hold um, that kind of a dialogue in, a, in an actual classroom situation? Absolutely. Um, first, I want to emphasize that there are, I would say, a family of related practices, and I encourage people to use what's effective in their particular situation, and there's such a range of of contexts in which one might want to engage in intellectual dialogue. Um, often people want to know, is this the right way, is this the right way? And uh, ultimately I like people to develop a sense of what really is effective for them in their context. Um, that said, uh, there are some particular contexts where I think we've developed some practices that are ex exceptionally effective. So let me, let me talk first about what I think of as the criteria for effectiveness, and then we'll go more deeply into how to actually structure situations in order to uh, produce outcomes that are likely to be effective by those criteria. So for me, the, the model for this kind of dialogue is simply um, delightfully engaging, powerful, enlightening dialogue. And the examples I like to use are the best intellectual dialogue any of us have ever experienced. And maybe it's 3 o'clock in the morning with your best friend, or, or maybe it's in a classroom, or maybe it's with a stranger you just happened to meet, 
where people are exchanging ideas and you're really learning something about about yourself and reality. For me, the fundamental core of Socratic inquiry is the search for the true, the good, and the beautiful, or the noble. And so any conversation in which the interaction with another human being is broadening your own understanding of that which is true, that which is good, and that which is beautiful or noble is, uh, is an effective Socratic dialogue. Um, in the particular situation of classroom contexts, um, and by classroom contexts, typically you know, school settings, typically a group of, I would say, at least five or six. Um, you can do it with two or three, but it, it, it's so informal at that point, it's just a natural conversation. Um, and up to maybe 15 is the most I'd like to go. I've done 20. Sometimes I've done 30 with an inner group and an outer group. But I'd say 10 to 15 students is kind of an ideal setting. In those settings, I would say um, group dynamics, it's useful to become explicit about group dynamic um, and explicit as a leader in terms of how to ensure you're having a positive group dynamic. Because what typically happens to undermine the quality of these conversations is that some students will dominate uh, to the detriment of the group. And that's one of many pathologies, but that's the most common one. You know, there are some students who think of themselves um, as perhaps more capable or more confident, or perhaps they're just extroverts or very vocal, whatever it is. And sometimes it's well-intentioned. It doesn't need, need to be out of some fault in them. But uh, some students are simply much more uh, fluent at talking in a group. And so, and that, that can be fine to get a group going. Um, sometimes even for a few days, occasionally even for a few weeks, to let a relatively small number do most of the talking. But if that persists over time, it ultimately becomes frustrating and, uh, and not, not helpful to the group. So one of the things I'll do is I will start to gently bring in quieter members of the group with uh, non-confrontational questions. And the purpose of that is that some people, there's just an extraordinary range of norms around uh, norms and personality types around engagement with group. And so I want to be very delicate about how I bring people in. Sometimes I describe my form of practice as kind of a analogy with martial arts. I'm more soft style Tai Chi as opposed to hard style karate. Um, you know, paper chase, a law school, Socratic is maybe the hard style karate. I very much want to bring everybody in. So if I've got some students who have been quiet after a number of sessions, I might just check in with them and say something like, um, are, are we being effective or not? Are we having a good conversation? Is this useful or not? Is this interesting or not? Something where it's a simple yes or no and where I'm explicitly asking them to pass judgment on us as a group. So it's not a question that requires them to have knowledge, you know, what does Plato mean by uh, the, the form, or you know, what did Kant mean by the categorical imperative? That's incredibly intimidating. Um, it's not something that you know is in any sense putting them on the spot about their personal beliefs. You know, uh, do you believe that you know women should have the same rights as men? You know, it's, it's not political or anything. It's simply, uh, in some ways, honoring them as an observer. Um, and often I'll do it when I think we, in fact, have not been uh, having an effective conversation. So I'll even orchestrate the situation after, you know, to me, this strikes, it strikes me as if we've been going around in circles 
it's actually a dreadful, boring, meaningless conversation. I'll check in with a quiet person and say, you think we're making progress on whatever? But those sorts of non-confrontational questioning them as a monitor, observer, evaluator of the process. And I'll, I'll you know, try different quiet ones. You know, often we'll have maybe uh, 20 to 30 percent of the class that's very active and 20 to 30 percent that's very quiet and somewhere in the, the rest in between. And I'll pick with different of the quiet ones and try to engage them. And once I get some engagement from a quiet one, and it's a trust building process, then I'll start to gradually rely on them more and more. And very often I'll find somebody who initially was quiet, but once they see that I'm not going to put them on the spot, that I'm respecting their their boundaries and their autonomy, and that I really do want to hear from them, and that I'll support them vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the group, then I can pull them in. And then I kind of create a lo longitudinal project where as they shift from simply a uh, yes or no question to a little bit more of a comment, um, as they tiptoe and dip their feet into the water regarding a substantive comment, uh, I'll, I'll use my weight to kind of support them. So, oh, um, Caitlin said that you know, Kant's comment is ultimately similar to something that Mark Twain said. Um, do you guys agree or not? And, and she may not have actually understood her her comment quite as well as I did. Uh, I often rephrase things more clearly than the student did themselves, but that way I can kind of subtly put my weight as leader or adult behind a student who's quiet or shy or intimidated or whatever until they feel strong enough in the group. Um, conversely, with respect to students that are too loud or dominant, one of the things I like to do at the end of session is have a debriefing session where we go around um, and there are various debriefing questions. One is, uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, was this the best station? And then I ask people why. Um, I'll also do a question such as, uh, what was the most frustrating and what was the most enlightening part of this conversation? Everybody, everybody say. And if, say, somebody who's too talkative says that it's frustrating because only a few of us spoke, then I might say, great, what can you do to help broaden participation? Um, and in general, any time any student says that they have a frustration with group dynamic, you know, my response is always wonderful. Thanks for, thanks for being honest about the frustration. I'll, I'll say I had the same frustration. What can you do? And so by means of expressing a frustration, they automatically uh, have given themselves an assignment in terms of their role in the group the next session. Um, with the more talkative ones, typically their assignment becomes to draw out less talkative ones and to restrain their own participation. Uh, sometimes I've had talkative students even say, you know, maybe I just need to be quiet for uh, you know, first next session or two or something like that. Um, you know, I, I have had students who are, I would say, so thick-skulled, I, I might have to say, you know, I think we need to have you be quiet for a couple of sessions. Uh, but as much as possible, I try to develop awareness on the part of students as to what, what will improve the dynamic of the group and how they can uh, take a positive role, proactive role, in terms of improving the dynamic of the group. I would say both in terms of my style of uh, asking questions to build up quiet ones as well as debriefing, um, using assigning roles and debriefing to improve the dynamic. Those are just a couple of the tools. Um, one of the reasons I think of this as a practice is as a group leader, one develops an extraordinary range of skills in terms of uh, improving the group dynamic over time. And I would say the single biggest difference between myself and a new leader 
is in terms of managing the group dynamic. Uh, the, the good news is that if one likes to develop an artistry, I think working in, in terms of improving these groups is as sophisticated an artistry as painting or mathematics or um, you know, Olympic figure dancing. Take your pick. It's a very sophisticated art. Uh, and I, I think one just needs to be patient early on and work with the group to improve it. One can even say, I like to be transparent. You know, I'll, sometimes I'll say to a group, I'm finding this conversation really repetitive and boring, and I don't know how to fix it. What do you think we should do in order to, to fix this? Um, because if I'm finding it boring, probably they're finding it boring. And of course, it's incredibly empowering for the students to have the adult admit a situation is boring. I find very often, because teachers are expected to be the ones making sure everything is happening, when I first started leading, and very often when people first start leading, they think, oh, I have to put on a good show. I have to make this happen. The fact is, group chemistry, human chemi the human chemistry of groups is so radically diverse, there's no way that any of us can walk in with a random group of 15 human beings and ensure a positive experience every time. Just no way. Um, I've been doing this for years. And sometimes I ask in the middle of a session, I'll say, this just doesn't work, and what's going on? But once you admit that it's not working, um, you know, and, and you know, have a certain commitment that we're going to try to find how to make it work, then that can be very liberating. And then we, we talk through that. Um, another kind of strategy in order to kind of get something going early on is uh, often students don't realize that ideas are important. And that sounds really strange. So I've talked about group dynamics, and I'm going to shift to the importance of ideas. Um, people who are apt to be listening to this conversation are a self-selected group of people who already care about ideas. One of the biggest shocks I've had uh, in working in public school classrooms for years and private school classrooms is that many students really don't understand ideas as meaningful. For them, school is at the extreme. School is a meaningless ritual where they do the homework, you know, memorize the uh, you know, answers for a test, put out the answers, and they go on and you know, watch movies, talk to their friends, play sports, do whatever they're going to do. But the notion that ideas have power, that ideas have an impact on reality, and that each of them has a personal responsibility for coming to their own understanding of the true, the good, and the beautiful, I would say that's almost, uh, for some students, a, I'll go ahead and say almost a religious conversion. That is, to shift from the notion that school is meaningless to the notion that um, if you believe that males and females ought to be treated equally, then you have obligations to act in a certain way in your life. That making a statement about um, a certain idea or proposition implies that there, there's a certain kind of action you should take in your life. life. That's a huge transformation. Um, and to, to bleep out a little bit to your political thing, I think most people, you know, ideas in politics are just used to beat people up with. I mean, in a lot of ways, you know, I, I don't take a lot of that very seriously because it's, it's almost a manipulative game. So one of the things that I work on doing in the classroom is making it clear that I take ideas personally in my life. What ideas I believe about the world will change the way that I act in the world and that I have that same expectation of every student in the class. So over time, you know, there's some, sometimes there are students who will say ideas are meaningless and you know, there is no truth. And they can be radically relativist and nihilist. And so I'll say, okay, so, so Jason over here says that it doesn't matter what people believe. So that means that if he claims that 
uh, males and females are equal. That means we can't really take him seriously because he doesn't really think ideas mean. Am I right, Jason, or am I wrong? And, and then I'll put people on the spot, I'll put young people on the spot in a big way for being relativists or nihilists or something like that. Again, if they want to be that way, that's their right. But socially, there is an impact to people making those claims and having those beliefs. If somebody else says, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, women should have no rights or women should have no rights, or, you know, that's, that's a belief with impact too, and I want to make that clear. I think one of the reasons that Socrates was such a powerful figure and that philosophy was so alive in Athens is that he was talking to real human beings in a relatively small-scale community about the implications of their ideas and action. Sadly, I think that uh, academic philosophy today has largely become a specialized activity where professors talk to other professors and that while there are some subcultures in which we hold each other accountable for our ideas, um, there's, there are also many cultures within the United States at any rate where people are not expected to be held accountable for their beliefs. They, they can say whatever they want to say and nobody really expects that they're morally serious. So I, I, I look at uh, U.S. culture as a whole and I think that uh, what I might call intellectual integrity and moral seriousness is a vanishing practice and it's certainly not supported in schools. Um, which I, I find a huge indictment in schools. And as a consequence, I've found that it can take uh, a semester or even a year to get people to really take ideas seriously. But I would say one of the biggest impacts that um, having Socratic practice can do in a classroom and even more so in an entire school is shift a school from one in which ideas are meaningless and school is a, is a simply meaningless ritual to one in which everybody cares about what everybody else believes about the world and people hold each other accountable for those beliefs. And I often claim that I've been most successful in a school when I spontaneously see students discussing ideas in the lunchroom. Um, and, and to go even further, I would say that there are um, advanced classes, gifted classes and so forth where students talk about ideas, but I find that it's most important that the culture of discussion of ideas goes across the entire population of students and where every student, regardless as to whether or not they think of themselves as a good, self as a good student, whether or not they feel cognitively powerful, that they nonetheless are morally powerful and they do feel as if their ideas are meaningful, um, they stand for something, and that they have a right to hold other students accountable for what they stand for. That may sound grandiose, uh, but for me, that's the real victory, is when students uh, of every sort in the school do take their ideas seriously and those of others seriously. And I often find that students who are perhaps not considered academic uh, take this on the most seriously, and those, that makes for the deepest transformation in the school. Um, so again, this, this is a long, sophisticated uh, sort of practice. Just at the most basic level, I like to have groups of 10 to 15 focused on reading a text. We work through the text. The text provides a convenient focus. If I just walk into a classroom and say, what do you believe to be true, good, or noble? It's kind of too untethered. Uh, it goes in too many different directions. And so a text provides for a collective focus. I've used movies, poems, scientific experiments, you know, all sorts of things as texts. 
but I do find written text to be most useful. Um, often students do believe that words can mean whatever they want to mean. They're, they tend to be very relative in terms of good is whatever you want it to be, noble is whatever you want it to be, um, truth is whatever you want it to be. Uh, I think one aspect of the pluralism of our societies, people don't believe that we can have real conversations about the truth of good and noble. By means of focusing a conversation on a specific text, often one paragraph, one sentence, um, I, I get students to come to the point where, okay, we can communicate in a meaningful way about these topics, if nothing else about what a text means. Very often when I start with a text, the students will say it can mean whatever you want it to mean. I'll say, um, you know, if it's a paragraph, I suppose it's a paragraph uh, from Plato, and somebody says it means whatever you want it to mean, I'll say, does this mean it can mean this is a recipe for chicken soup, or is this a mathematical equation, uh, is this a pop song? They'll say, well, no, it's not that. It's not recipe for chicken soup. Okay, then, then we know it's not some things, and it is some things. So it actually takes some work even to get the most minimal uh, public social consensus on the possibility of talking about the truth, the good, and the noble. Uh, but once we get there, then I'm relentless about pulling together students around a more focused conversation, um, typically based on text, in which we all really create a culture in which this is the norm. Um, I think, again, in addition to the group dynamics, one of the ways in which I as a leader differ from a lot of earlier leader or yet experienced leaders is my relentless tug towards serious conversations about the truth, the good, and the noble. Um, often teachers will back off when students uh, claim that things can mean whatever they want to mean or, or that we, there's no consensus in good. Again, we're not talking about you know, political truth, they're just saying, what does this sentence mean? Can we agree what this sentence means? And in the case of the good, I will, I'll, will use extreme examples. Sometimes I've had to say, um, is it okay to torture innocent children? Um, and you know, I certainly don't believe it is. And I can get a group of students to say, yes, we agree it's not okay to do so. So if there is one student who says it's okay to torture innocent children, then the rest of the group does start to look at that person differently. Um, I, 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 sadly, I can't exaggerate the extent to which relativism, moral relativism is the norm, the social norm among uh, adolescents in our society. So I often have to, we often have to go to those extreme situations before we can get traction on it. You know what? There are some norms. Um, but there are some moral truths. And most of us, most of the time, do believe in some moral truths. And once we acknowledge that, then we need to work together to see can we get any closer beyond the most minimal sense of what counts as you know, moral, decent behavior? Um, and it could be differ by community by community, but uh, that, that, that's what gives power and energy. I think young people, I think it's a human nature to want to care about the good. And I, I think that our society has really violated one of the most fundamental propositions of human nature by raising young people in cultures with absolutely no guidance as to what the good is. I think that's a reaction. In some ways, I think the generation of the 60s um, and people before and after reacted against the sort of dominant hierarchies of good. You know, people who are leaving the Catholic Church don't want to be ruled by their norms anymore. People protesting, you know, whatever, the military, they don't want to be whatever, whatever, people are rebelling against all sorts of things. But in the course of rebelling against dominant hierarchies where they were told what to think, um, without a constructive environment in which we learn how to work together to produce our own moral insights, which, which the result has been um, you know, these, these pluralistic amoral communities where students, uh, in essence, come to believe that hedonism is the only legitimate uh, or is, is as legitimate as anything else. And I think if we want 
to raise young people with in a morally meaningful culture, and if we want young people to care about something um, you know, outside the privacy of their own heads, we need to provide an environment in which they can construct moral meaning together as moral communities um, and without telling them what to believe, just making it very clear that this is an important part of who they are, is to stand for something and to figure out over time what they stand for and why. So it's a, a long rambling answer. Uh, anything else on your first question? Um, <laughs> it was a great answer. Okay, so uh, there's so much I do want to drill down on, <clears throat> but I want to be sensitive to your time as well, so tell me when we reach a point where we need to stop. Um, as you described the practice, I was, in my introduction to, to just talking with you now, I was tripping over the word dialogue a little because I worried that that was maybe the word you were that you used to describe practices in classrooms that weren't effective, and um, Not a, is that am I misremembering? Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, no, I, I actually I love dialogue, and I would differ. I, I, I the terms I don't I'm not so common and not so fond of are discussion and debate. I would say discussion has connotations for me of just you know any conversation. It's not very precise. Debate is typically. Uh, a, a ritual in which people, you know, in formal competitive debate, people are committed to a proposition and they're defending that proposition um, by any means necessary in order to prove that proposition right. The difference for me is in dialogue, there's always a possibility we could pr be persuaded by the other person. And for me, that's the most powerful part of uh, intellectual dialogue is when I had thought that I believed something about the truth, the good, and the beautiful, and you persuaded me that your perspective is actually more compelling than mine. And I say, wow, Steve, I hadn't thought of that. That really, that really changes my mind. And those moments, however rare, of changing our minds based on evidence, argument, um, insight, are, are what makes the experience most valuable. And so I actually love the term dialogue. Martin Buber has written on dialogue. And, and Buber is, you know, Buber famous for the eyes out experience. Buber drills down deep in terms of dialogue as a deep interpersonal experience where we really are um, exchanging who we are. And so when I talk about us being morally serious human beings, discussion, that could just be chitter chatter. But for me, um, moral dialogue or intellectual dialogue is where we really are taking each other seriously as as human beings with responsibilities in the world. So I actually love the term dialogue. Okay, I'm so glad you've described that. So from what I heard from you as well, uh, the process is very intentional. Right? I mean, you're not just kind of letting the dialogue go. You're looking for ways in which to help shape that as growth experience. Um, and also the word that really occurs to me is that it's a generative process. I know that word gets used in a variety of different settings, but for me, you're modeling, you're not only helping the, the dialogue and the thinking and the, the understanding of ideas, but you're also modeling how that's done. Absolutely. I would say modeling is one of the most important aspects of this, which is why earlier I said modeling the fact that this, this session is boring is important, or modeling the fact that I do believe it's wrong to torture innocent children, but lots of modeling, modeling the fact that I would ask a quiet student, um, are we successful or not? That is, I'm modeling respect for his or her opinion. Um, to, go, to go back to the um, way in which uh, I think it's critical to model and a way in which many teachers, I've spent a lot of time training teachers to do this, and a difference between how I typically engage and how many 
traditional teachers engage in a conversation is often traditional teachers in asking questions will have a mental model in their brain of the right answer. And so they'll say, you know, what's the symbolism of the river in Huxin? And, you know, they've taught it for 20 years in their English class, and they're looking for certain kinds of answers and waiting to see, oh, that student matched my answer, oh, that student didn't. And even if they try not to say that's right and that's wrong, um, you know, in poker there's the notion of a tell where you can, you know, if somebody's bluffing or not. And so invariably, if they have that mental model in their mind, they'll nod and smile at the student that gives the right answer, and they'll, you know, give negative body language to the person who gives the wrong answer. And as soon as you're doing that, then students realize it's not about their ideas and what they think. It's about teacher approval and disapproval. And they're trying to guess, what is the teacher thinking and how do I get their approval? What, is, you know, what, are, what can I say that, that is the right answer? And then if, if a teacher is doing that, I'd much rather they just lecture at the students because it's really deeply corrupting of the process for the students to pretend that you're asking the students an authentic question, but instead you're evaluating whether or not they're agreeing with you or not, um, but being deceptive while doing that. And, and so one of the things that I, I really uh, practice modeling is simply repeating, mirroring what a student says. Um, you know, so you think that the Mississippi River in Mark Twain is a snake. Okay, why do you think it's a snake? And no matter, sometimes no matter how um, absurd a, an idea might be, oh, you think it is okay to torture children. Am I understanding you correctly? You know, I'll, I'll go ahead and mirror it. Um, and there, there's there are a whole host of, uh, I would say, related dialogic procedures. Sometimes in nonviolent communication, for instance, uh, there, there's some mirroring. And what I do is different from NVC, but um, the practice of accurately reflecting what somebody else is saying is really useful because it causes us to stop and make sure that we're communicating accurately. And what that does is it models for other students to accurately make sure they're understanding somebody else before going on to the next step and disagreeing. Um, you know, with, with NVC, we encourage not to be judgmental, whereas in a sense I encourage judgmental, but only after there's understanding. So I always model this check for understanding. And, um, and then after modeling that, then I might check to see if somebody else agrees with the person or not. Or I might check, did I, did I uh, state that accurately or not? And so I'll spend real time slowing the process down so that students work towards understanding each other. Often when students begin doing this, um, and, and often when adults do this, it just seems like unrelated babble. Person A speaks, person B has something completely unrelated, certain person C. You know, it, it's almost like this reflection of egos with very little interaction, real interaction between each other's ideas. And so this process of reflecting and making sure everyone is reflecting vis-a-vis everyone else and accurately communicating ideas forces us to um, be, be talking about the same thing. And in some ways, one of the ways in which I see what I do is kind of create, creating threads of communication. So instead of all these people battling in their egotistical bubbles alone, which sounds harsh, but that's the way it looks like, and again, with many adult groups, uh, you know, think about think about meetings where everybody just has their own agenda. Um, I work at making sure that A communicated to B, B communicated to C, C is now communicating with A, and when D jumps in, D is on the same topic. Um, you know, and there, there, sometimes I don't want to be that controlling. Sometimes it's it's great to have a wild popcorn 
um, sort of interaction where everybody is all over the place. That produces energy. But uh, if we never communicate, we can never make progress. And so in terms of, I would say, generating new insight, generating real human dialogue, generating moral seriousness and moral community, it's crucial that at least some of the time um, they, we have this successful communication with each other. Uh, at one point, I had a group of students, and um, I had business people from the community come and evaluate them on group dynamics before I began working with them and after working with them for a semester. And many of the business people acknowledged that after a semester of working with me, the eighth graders, and this is inner city eighth graders, were communicating more effectively with one another than did the business leaders in their own meetings. Uh, once one starts to become careful about communication, one soon realizes that uh, most adult communication is, uh, if not a failure, at least not terribly effective. So again, you got me going. Um, not, not sure if I answered that question or not, but I'm happy to, to go to whatever, whatever I stimulated in your question process it's so on your end. It's so funny that you used Huck Finn as an example. So I grew up in an academic family, um, and my dad attended Haverford College, which is a liberal arts college with Quaker roots. And he used this story of sitting in English class freshman year um, when the teacher said to him, Fred, what do the storm clouds mean when Huck and Jim are on the raft? And my dad said, well, it means it's going to rain. <laughs> and... <laughs> you know, so the I mean, my dad actually has used that story for years to describe the moment in his life when he had to look beyond the sort of immediacy of the message. Okay, so, and I, I ended up going to Haverford for two and a half years and then transferred to Stanford after that, but um, grew up in a family in which the liberal arts tradition was important. Um, and uh, last week I read a news story that just sort of stunned me. And it was that the banks have been allowed to appoint their own consultant investigators to investigate the mortgage fraud within the banks. And I thought, what are we missing here that we don't seem to understand at a very basic level that uh, there are things that we know about human nature uh, and about... A power and the corruption of power that have you know that 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 have been a part of the public discourse of the checks and the balances and the ways you make sure that um, we overcome kind of a, a, our baser selfish natures that feel like they're missing now I and that may bleed into the other topic as well sort of the larger political topic but but in in your work in this area is this a part of helping people to understand that we are imperfect, that we often see things from a myopic perspective, and that it's really important to understand that in our dealings with others? Well, certainly. I would say, you know, I'm glad you came from the liberal arts tradition. I think there was once a wonderful liberal arts tradition in the U.S., uh, especially with the great small liberal arts colleges. And I don't know to what extent how Haverford has fared over the years, but I know it had once had a great reputation. Um, and I think there are a lot of people that were raised in that tradition, also in secondary schools. I think there was uh, more of a tradition in the, in the classical liberal arts uh, in both secondary and collegiate education. And my sense is that it has dissolved uh, for lots of reasons we could go into. 
But um, I, I do think that at its best, the liberal arts tradition inculcates some wisdom um, in various ways. And part of it is simply realizing that other people see the world differently, which, again, sounds trivial. I, I would say having spent so much time with uh, you know, young people, often public school, I emphasize public school population because one does, uh, one is exposed in public school populations to a range of people from different classes, different ethnicities, different religions. Um, you know, if, if one does this in a private school, often the backgrounds of the children are such that uh, they, they have some of the liberal arts DNA, as it were, um, you know, already in them. And so you're not exposed to the full range of uh, where people are coming from in America today. But with public school populations, often you know, it's, it's a surprise to people that other people have such different worldviews and beliefs. Um, and the process of interacting regularly, and uh, regularly, I like this for an hour a day, at least an hour a day, five days a week in a school, if not two hours a day, five days a week in a school, which by most people's standards is a lot. But that kind of regular interaction, having diverse conversations about the true, the good, and the beautiful in the context of very specific textual analysis, means that you realize, wow, Steve, I had no idea you thought that. Um, and, and over time, you, know, you come to respect people for different beliefs, especially if we're held to a certain set of standards and norms about how to interact. You know, what, what counts as intellectual integrity? What counts as appropriate behavior in a group and so forth? Um, and you realize the world is very complex, um, that people very often are delusional, often smart kids in the class. One of the things I like to uh, orchestrate, as it were, and although I, I do create an authentic dialogue, uh, I also you know, can manage to have some outcomes more likely authentically occur than others, is a situation in which the, you know, again, one of the big class divisions in a typical public school is not um, income, but it's cognitive ability, where often the smart kids think they're better than the rest of the kids. And so I love to orchestrate a situation in which I see that the smart dominant kids are clearly wrong, and I let them, you know, give them enough rope to hang themselves, so to speak. And then I'll point out passages that completely contradict them, and often some of the kids who may be socially intimidated and intellectually intimidated will see the truth of these other paragraphs uh, or the other propositions. And they'll say, well, that doesn't support what you guys are saying. And over time, it gives everybody a voice and helps them to understand, you know, no matter how smart and or powerful somebody is, they can be wrong. They can be totally wrong. And I have to stand up for what I believe. And I have to stand up for what I think is true because I can't trust them to come to the right decision. Um, no matter, you know, what, what, what are the differences between I think, people that have gone through this and people that have gone through traditional education is a lot of people respect the authorities. Whether those respect authorities are bankers or politicians or religious leaders or academic professors or doctors or whatever. You know, at some point, um, I, I like to think of it as there's no magic, you know. Okay, so a doctor studied medicine and so forth, and uh, the doctor thinks what the doctor thinks. And so if, if I'm going to be diagnosed for disease, I do want to look on the Internet and see what do, I, what do I think about the disease. 
you know, the bankers, they could all be wrong. The politicians, they could all be wrong. We don't have time to investigate, but there's no magic out there. I don't believe anybody has this godlike insight into something. And if some still small voice within me thinks, well, that doesn't sound right, then, you know, if I have the time, energy, and interest, I will pursue my own knowledge and, um, and, and question what they're doing. And I would certainly want an outcome of all my schools to be that all of the students feel completely empowered to question what the authorities are doing. Um, one of the great examples is uh, Lorenzo's Oil is a film in which parents who are not academics, who, I mean, who are not uh, doctors or scientists discover their child has a deficiency of a certain kind of oil in his brain and the result will be you know, retardation and then death, brain damage and then death. They refuse to accept this and they do independent research on um, synthesizing this oil and getting it into their child's brain. And the, all the scientific authorities say it's impossible, cannot be done. And over a course of a number of years, they in fact succeed. Uh, unfortunately, their child has already suffered brain damage at that point, but they help him to live far beyond with much higher quality of life than the authorities had, been, had said was possible. And so I, I think in every domain, one of, the, one of the results of this kind of education should be that we have an obligation to think for ourselves and that we should expect that uh, all authorities have their own vested interests and agendas. That may or may not mean they're bad people, uh, but they're limited. And that we as citizens, as consumers, as uh, friends, as neighbors, as whatever, we have a responsibility to stand up for what we believe to be right and to figure it out. Uh, and in a way, I would say this, this is a matter of empowering moral agency, moral intellectual agency enough to, to be more powerful moral agents, but really empowering people to be moral agents um, in all aspects of their life. So for me, one of the examples of this is lobbying, right? So the, mm -hmm. the person who works as a lobbyist, it's not necessarily uh, a, a bad person, Right there, where they work within a firm or a company, and they have a, a end goal, and they're pursuing that, and they're they're lobbying for certain legislation and the like. Um, and yet, at the same time, if you step back from that specific um, agenda for their job at that moment in time, we could ask the question of whether or not lobbying, in and of itself, is an effective way to think about creating legislation. And the fact that there's nobody who's going to lobby for certain things that we would see as important, right? So uh, in my particular case, thinking about education, nobody's going to spend lobbying money to help students become self-directed, right? There's, you know, that there isn't a revenue stream associated with that. So there's not going to be a, a for-profit entity that's going to say, this is positive for us. So it feels as though it's really important to be able to step back and look at that from some distance and say, okay, so one of the maybe one of the potentially most important things in education isn't going to get lobbied for. What about the person who's in that job, right? Um, is, is education kind of the key to helping people make good decisions that may go against their own personal financial interest in a moment in time and seeing a larger picture? And is it a stretch to say that that's maybe a part of the key of the moral um, base or value of a country is that 
there that we have that dialogue that that allows us at times to say, you know, this is maybe not for the be- the greater good. So I need to think differently about what I'm doing. Well, again, the, now we're going into much bigger, more complex, more difficult subjects. But um, so I'm going to leap ahead to that. I, I would say, I'm, and by the way, one of the things that brought my wife and I together is my wife has a very powerful moral sense, uh, such that on her own she would just be um, angry and furious all the time about all of the immoral acts being done all over the place, and. Uh, I think one of the ways in which we bonded was that I give her uh, hope, however distant, <laughs> that we can make things better. Um, I think that people crave meaning and purpose, and that people, I mean, this is ultimately Platon, the Platonist ultimately believes people have the good, and that's sometimes seeing all the bad that happens in the world, that's, that may look like a hard belief to fulfill, and yet um, to go and circuit back circle back around the lobbying answer in a minute, but um, in business and capitalism, very often people had thought of it as strictly a matter of greed. And yet one of the things we've seen in the last 30, 40 years is the rise of what people in my network called conscious capitalism. That is, there are a number of businesses where the entrepreneurs created them, did it because they loved what they were doing, and they wanted to, to make the world a better place, and they wanted to do to, to good. And Although business offers countless opportunities to take shortcuts, including lobbying, but all sorts of you know, deceit and various opportunities, there are some people who want to create businesses that make things better. And, you know, and I would say in every field, there are some people who do care about the truth of good and the beautiful, and there are other people who really don't. I think part of that's genetic. I, know I would love to be enough of a Platonist to say we could heal all of them, or heal or educate all of them out of out of doing bad. But uh, to, to take a different example, there was a book uh, by a man named Paul Hulana who had been raised in the Bering Sea, on a King Island in the Bering Sea, and he remembered what life was like before the white men came. I think the you know, Europeans only landed there in the 1950s because it was in the middle of nowhere, Bering Sea. And he said that sometimes before white men came, Sometimes somebody would be bad and everybody would say, don't do that, quit being bad, and this person keep being bad. And over after repeated warnings, um, this person would finally, uh, somebody would just go out and kill them and the whole community would be happier, which is very harsh. But insofar as we sometimes have this romantic Rousseau notion of indigenous peoples as just all sweetness and light, I think you know it's not that modern society or... European civilization has created uh, ill-behaved people. I think always there have been some, you know, genetic range. Some people estimate one or two percent of the population are psychopaths. Um, you know, I think there's some people that don't have a moral compass. Uh, I think there are some people who probably would have a moral compass no matter what society they raised in, no matter what circumstances. You know, in the Nazi concentration camps, who are people who are moral. Um, you know, there are heroic people who saved the Jews uh, at cost of personal risk to them in, uh, you know, occupied France and so forth. So in between the, the psychopaths with no moral compass on the one hand and the moral heroes who would be good no matter what, there is a huge range. I think that the purpose of education should be to help some of those in the middle move more towards the, the moral side. And then beyond education, I think, uh, of moral networks, and this is going back to the conscious capitalism thing, where I think 
one of the one of the ways in which our conscious capitalism organization I think is valuable is to have networks of people who um, enjoy doing business out of a sense of good and not to be the most profitable they can. Um, John Mackey, the CEO of Whole Foods, with whom I work, uh, likes to go to conferences and talk about the role of love in business, which freaks out some traditional business types, but I think it's good and healthy. So, you know, to go back to your lobbyist, I'm, I expect there are some, as it were, psychopathic lobbyists who are completely unscrupulous. I suspect there are others who, there are in fact, uh, good causes need lobbyists, and some, I'm sure there are lobbyists for good causes, um, and there are people in between. And so I think uh, both in terms of K-12 and university education on the one hand, as well as in adult moral networks, this goes back to the moral seriousness I was trying to inculcate in classrooms and schools in my earlier part of the conversation, we need communities of moral seriousness where it's normal to talk to each other about what's good and right um, in a way that's not brittle and partisan. I think sometimes people think that their side is completely right and they simply want to shout down people who disagree with them. I don't regard that as constructive. So I think well, part of the, the great... Um, legacy of liberal arts education, Socratic dialogue, morally serious dialogue, is that we balance this tension between respecting different perspectives on the one hand and being um, non-judgmental on the other hand. It really is kind of a delicate art. I think at its best, uh, liberal arts and Western civilization did a good job of that. But I think now we have this situation in which people are either kind of brittly righteous and partisan on the one hand, or nihilistic relativists on the other hand. And in order to make the world a better place, we need constructive, healthy, moral dialogue where we can create moral communities, either in the classroom or school, or more broadly in society, where we know that this or that person is a trustworthy, reliable person with integrity, even if we disagree, and we can move the ball forward to make the world a better place by means of conversation and, uh, and action and partnership with such people. So it feels to me like it's a little bit of a catch-22. Right? We've got um, a high-stakes testing narrative around uh, K-12 schools. Uh, that produces a reliance on conformity and compliance. Um, it often involves drugging students so that they are comfortable sitting still for that environment. Um, I think it also leads to a lack of willingness to question authority, which then kind of feeds back into um, their being able to be a national narrative around education, which is, in my view, so unhealthy. I'm, I'm not assuming that you agree with how I've just described that, but if there's truth to that, how do we break that cycle? I mean, what you and I are talking about, this, well, is a, this isn't a conversation I have with a ton of people. Yeah, just to acknowledge, despite the fact that I'm endlessly optimistic, the current situation is extremely depressing. <laughs> um, you know, and just on the medication, you know, the trends in medication are outrageous. Uh, we are, you know, medication is, a, is a, I would say, an offensive euphemism. We're drugging significant portions of young populations of young people. I've heard, you know, things like 30 to 40 percent of young people are on some kind of so-called medication, um, and some of it, you know, are the Ritalin, ADD, ADHD sorts of drugs. Other of it are you know, antidepressants, because a large number of kids are, anti are you know, clinically depressed. I mean, it's just horrifying. It's, it's truly horrifying what's happening to our young people. 
Um, and if I think about it, I, I would become depressed. I, you know, all I can do is look forward and take action. Um, and, and I do think the whole no child left behind, it's all test scores, and then the, the hedonism. And, uh, again, uh, I sound like an old moral fuddy-duddy to talk about hedonism, but um, the consumerism is, is ubiquitous. And I talk about electronic addictions. I think a lot of kids, and these are good-hearted, nice kids, I, you know, I love them, I love teenagers, but a lot of them, and not just teenagers, younger people, are de facto addicted to electronics. Um, you know, they've got, some households have TVs in every room, in the child's bedroom, in the bathroom. You know, they've got, you know, iPods or whatever, so they're plugged into music all the time. They've got video games. They've got all sorts of electronic addictions. So this notion of stepping out and, um, you know, engaging another human being in dialogue uh, is, is really pulling them out of the electronic addiction cycle. Actually, you know, one of the one of the um, figures that's often used to put fear into uh, U.S. policymakers about uh, U.S. education is the fact that we so, score so poorly in international tests. And I actually saw a, a disaggregation of the data in which, if we look solely at the households with two or fewer televisions. The United States is competitive with the top nations on earth on the international tests. So quite aside from uh, you know, dollars per school or class size or um, you know, ethnic background or whatever, uh, simply having fewer televisions in a household results in significantly increased academic performance such that we're internationally competitive. And you know, for me, whenever I create a school, one of my first things is to get on parents' cases about the, of the electronic addictions. So, yeah, we've got the so-called medication, otherwise known as drugging kids uh, in horrible ways, uh, combined with electronic addictions and you know, implicit sort of consumerism and hedonism, and, and no kind of movement to proactively develop new cohorts of schools and young people that uh, really are focused on creativity, innovation, and entrepreneurship on the one hand, uh, the search for the truth, the good, and the beautiful, moral seriousness, healthy communities, um, and, and really meaning and purpose is the core of adolescent experience. Uh, I, I think of young people, you know, I'm very interested in evolutionary psychology and you know, the indigenous environment in which we evolved. And in traditional cultures, at the age of 12 or 13, people were expected Males and females were expected to take on adult responsibility. You know, often, uh, you know, a young, a young warrior was expected to go, you know, have a have time alone where he helped, hunted his first deer, or maybe you know, hunted and kept himself alive for a, a month or whatever. And different tribes had different sorts of rituals, but it was really, uh, um, you know, becoming a man and taking on adult responsibilities and coming back and playing a real role in the adult community. You know, the, the women as well. There was a ritual, uh, often a menstruation, and after that, then they came back and they were expected to take on adult responsibilities. And I think it's deep in our DNA to take on adult responsibilities. And so the infantilization of adolescence, I think, is absolutely catastrophic. And when the infantilization of adolescence is combined with, um, you know, chemical addiction, and now we're not talking not only about prescription drugs, but also um, I, I think I think a lot of drug addiction and alcoholism among teens is, as it were, self-medication. Life is so boring and meaningless. What do you do? Uh, you know, Rebecca Black had this uh, hit 
hit horrible song, which is all about party, party, party. You know, that's that's what it's about for most kids. School is mind-numbingly boring and meaningless. So what do you do? You look forward to Friday when you party. Um, and so we, we've got really a disastrous situation. Uh, and for me, it's a matter of how do we how do we get around it. So. Um, you know, I, I am in favor of things like the unschooling movement where families are starting to create meaningful experiences. Uh, you know, it's very supportive of Montessori and Waldorf education um, because those, I would say, are meaningful educational traditions, although the Montessori movement is just beginning into adolescence. There are some good private schools with uh, traditions around meaning and purpose, though not as quite as much as I'd like, and some, some yes, some no. I'm sympathetic very much to religious education. I'm a secular educator, but for me, uh, the urgency around meaning and purpose is so great uh, that even as a secular educator, I, I think young people need meaning and purpose, and that's religion, um, more power to them. Um, one of the concrete things that I've, I've been working on is working towards a tuition tax credit where a Waldorf educator here in New York State has uh, allied himself with uh, some of the religious educational communities, the Jewish and Catholic religious schools, as well as um, you know, some of the other uh, non-aligned independent schools, private schools, to push towards a tuition tax credit. So people from all classes can have access to, I would say, meaning-based education. One of the real disasters is, I think, this is a class issue, and insofar as public schools are not places in which one can develop coherent meaning and purpose, individual teachers can, individual, individual principals can, but as soon as that teacher is reassigned or retires, or as soon as that principal is reassigned or retired, you go back to all, all NCLB testing all the time. Um, so poor kids in particular uh, are not allowed access to schools that develop all of these other crucial life, you know, life skills is a, is a dreadful, cliched understatement. Um, but, but they need meaning and purpose. They need creativity and innovation. They need an atmosphere in which they are moral agents. They need to be respected as uh, empowered people who can, can do things with their lives. And they're not getting that in the average secondary school classroom uh, in the public school system, nor do I see them, nor do I see that possible in the next 20 years. Uh, if ever. So for me, the tuition tax credit thing is important. Go ahead. No, no, no. Finish, and then I'll start. Sure, sure. So uh, but it's going another direction. Um, I recently met uh, the director of admissions at Yale, and uh, he's a wonderful fellow, PhD in philosophy, who cares passionately about these issues. And one of the strategies I've worked on is, as an educator is in order to allow um, both great academic performance plus meaning and purpose, is if you look at the college admissions process, and ultimately elite college admissions drives a lot of attitudes about education. And so in terms of a lever, if we want to look at a lever that can change things, if the elite college admissions process um, values explicitly certain aspects of life, uh, education more broadly is like to, and this is not just in the US but globally, uh, you know, how to get into Harvard and Yale is what everybody wants to know around the world, all, all uh, power elite families everywhere. I was working with a Saudi billionaire last year, and oh, he wants to get his kids into Harvard. <laughs> it's the same thing everywhere. But I was talking to the uh, admissions director at Yale and pointed out that um, if a child, if an 18-year-old, 17-year-old has very high SAT scores, 
meaning they can read, write, and do math uh, at a very high level. And they've done, say, two or three AP tests to demonstrate they can master very high-level content knowledge, you know, biology, English language, French, whatever. Uh, but it only needs to be two or three. It doesn't need to be 10 or 15. Um, then the next thing that is most important about college admissions, at least from this, this admissions director's perspective, as well, Fred Hargadon, former admissions director of Yale, has written along these lines as well, is deep, um, deep commitment and deep demonstration of excellence in a, particular, in a particular domain. And so the examples I like to use are to have written a novel or to start a business or to have created a band or something where often parents think that elite college admissions is about, oh, they need to be student council president and they need to be an orchestra and they need to be on varsity sports and they need to volunteer so many hours a week and you know this checklist of stuff. But instead of a kind of random checklist of stuff that just makes these kids insanely busy at the top uh, and it's goofing off, for me, the more appropriate paradigm is, no, at the age of 12 or 13, one should begin to develop a deep passion and really follow one's passions. And it can be to program computers, to be art, to ride horseback, to whatever it is. But I think if young people were given and supported in an education system in the pursuit of their passions, that would be much more healthy and powerful. And um, you know, Malcolm Gladwell says it takes 10,000 hours to become world-class at something. I think kids of every class could become world-class at something if from the age of 12 or 13 or so to the age of 18 or so, they had significant chunks of time, say three or four hours a day, to devote to their passion that they loved and cared about beyond else. And it turns out, in my experience as an educator, if all we need to focus on is world-class reading, writing, math, um, you can do that in, say, three hours a day. And so basically my secondary curriculum is let's get top-notch skills in three hours a day, say something like that, and then let kids focus on pursuing their passions for three hours a day. And as a consequence, we could have cohorts of uh, young people who on the one hand were really world-class about some, at something. And I think that addresses the medication, both you know, ADD. Hey, if you're, if you're a programmer or a rock guitarist or whatever, you're, you're not going to be taking Ritalin if you're doing what you love. You know? the, you're doing what you love stuff takes care of this. It takes care of the depression. It takes care of lots of stuff. It's so much healthier than going through all these, frankly, bullshit classes and uh, you know, studying for stuff that memorize and forget. Either they memorize and forget or they don't memorize and don't forget and just get their Ds or Fs or whatever. Um, but that would be a much healthier paradigm for education. So I'm trying to twist this, uh, this CL guy's arm into writing an article to validate this and, and, again, to create a coalition of people around this ought to be what secondary school is like. Like, yes, reading, writing, arithmetic, let's get those down solid, but free up adolescents to pursue their passions and dreams and make that uh, what adolescents ought to be about. Um, so that, that's my rant on that. Uh, <laughs> okay. I'm sure you have great follow-up questions. Well, we don't need to go much longer, but so now I'm sure you've made the connection that Fred Hargadon is my father, right? So I... I had... I had not. Oh my God! Um, it's now obvious. It's now <laughs> obvious. I had not. That's fabulous. So I grew up in this. What a coincidence! Well, it's not a coincidence because I grew up in this culture of college admissions, and I mean, he was a dean of admissions at Swarthmore, and then at Stanford, and then at Princeton, and so this is sort of in my bones and blood. 
Um, I, 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 I want to tell you that I really agree on the television issue. I think we have underestimated the degree to which um, the ubiquity of television has impacted all kinds of things, especially motivation and, and interest. Um, and I really agree on the adulthood issue. There's a great book called Teen 2.0 by Robert Epstein. I interviewed him for the show and, and really agree with the degree to which we infantilize youth. And in particular, I'm interested in the ways in which um, dystopian fiction often you know, has heroes who were in that young teen age range, almost as though they're, you know, our youth are yearning for vicariously experiencing, you know, a powerful, independent teenagers. But I will tell you that I'm going to be the optimist to compliment your pessimism on technology. Um, and as the father of four children, I've really noticed that when I use their opportunities now to to be creators and do things interesting on the handheld devices, uh, it actually plays very well into helping them find things they care about and being proactive. But when I was negative and controlling, um, I actually created the very thing that I was trying to protect against. And so in my own parenting, I've discovered that um, the the mobile devices and the technology are allowing me to help my children become much more interested in specific things and much more proactive in following them. Does that make sense? Of technology, um, be totally fine with an education that was substantially technology. But what I would suspect is that, for one, I suspect you and your wife and other members of your family, certainly your father, uh, modeled. Uh, talk about ideas in the home, that you probably had conversations about ideas with your children, you modeled all sorts of behaviors, your children probably saw you reading here and there occasionally, and so your children's whole experience about technology and the relationship to technology is very different from somebody where um, you know, the children have very little attention from the parents, they're basically babysat by the television from the time they're young, they have no guidance or boundaries at all about what they're using technology for. Um, you know, I, I think moderation in all things. Aristotle is a pretty smart guy. Um, and I think it's a matter of how you interact with technology. And so my goal would be to empower young people. This gets into the, the kind of social. A lot of what we're talking about is how do we transfer a cultural capital? I think that, um, you know, once upon a time, school was a matter of academic content. And because, you know, basically the school model we have now is designed for um, 19th century uh, upper class, that's a kind of prep school model, and then modified for, you know, basic, basic skills development, reading, writing, arithmetic, and so forth. But it did not address the issue of, of cultural content. And I think the reason why your children can use technology usefully and the reason why many children don't has to do with things like you had the conversations. And one of the things that, um, you know, I know a lot of people are fond of Summerhill and just let kids do what they want. And I point out uh, it really depends on how you let them do what they want. Um, one of the uh, uh, famous, there's a famous person, uh, Memoirs of a Superfluous Man, I forget his name, Min not Minkin, but 
Um, anyway, he was once told, you're such a great teacher, and he said, but I do nothing. And the person said, but it's the way in which you do nothing, which sounds like a paradox. But I do, I've, I've become very fascinated in all the invisible structures uh, that result in some young people making great decisions with autonomy and other young people not making great decisions with autonomy. That's autonomy vis-a-vis -vis technology. Or not. I, I passionately believe in developing autonomy, letting people do whatever they want, but um, there is some sort of cultural substrate. So one of the things we have to do is to help transfer this cultural substrate. And I'm afraid so many, you, you're the beneficiary of such fabulous cultural capital. Um, I think one of the problems we have to work on is how do we help lots of other people get that cultural capital. And I think uh, default uh, access to technology with no other intervention uh, is not likely to, to develop this cultural capital among, say, lower socioeconomic groups. I absolutely agree with you. Uh, I think that kind of brings us back to the beginning of our conversation and sort of the intentional way in which you manage this Socratic practice and probably very similar to the sort of the intentional way I look at the technology use of my kids. I will say that I'm very interested in, I think it's going to be a fascinating cultural study over the next 10 years because aside from a lot of the negatives that are appropriately associated with consumption of, of, um, of uh, activities on these devices. There's also a degree to which these devices have empowered independence amongst a class, certainly, but an, specifically an age group of teens. Uh, when, my, when I was growing up and the phone rang, you know, everybody in the house knew who it was I was talking to and they heard the conversation. And intriguingly, my kids have all kinds of interactions that are very independent of me. Um, so our youngest is a 14-year-old, and she um, she has a level of independence through her handheld device that is stunningly different than when I was growing up. Now, g good, bad, or indifferent, I, I mean, I think it's going to be very interesting to watch. I think it's going to be very interesting to watch that particular cohort because Part of what I think is happening in schools where there's a concern about, like the, the New York Times article that just came out about the distractedness of youth, part of it is, in fact, I think distraction. Part of it, I think, is a willingness to say no. There's a, there's a sense of independence that wasn't there before. And, I'm, and, and again, you know, I, I may be playing the optimist in this particular conversation, but I'll be very curious to see if that translates into any positives around um, not not being so infantilized or not allowing themselves to be so infantilized because they have such extensive connections outside of their families. Well, this so once upon a time I ran across an account of two teenage boys, 12 and 13 year old boys in Florida who hated school. And so what they did is they, they dropped out of supply to um, for the, to the Florida Department of Education to create a private school, and they actually managed to, you know, all, they, all it was is paperwork, so they created a private school, this is in the 90s, and they managed to graduate from their private school. I don't know if they're, when or if their parents found out, but they gave themselves grades, they gave themselves a curriculum, <laughs> basically they did all of this, and then they went off and had, you know, cool entrepreneurial careers. Um, but I, I think that's a great example of maybe the education revolution that we want is not going to come from policymakers. It's not going to come from, uh, you know, professors or do-gooders or anything. 
maybe we'll just see a rebellion of young people. They realize we don't need this, and we can take off and do it on our own. And I certainly know, I've known a lot of very bright kids that have dropped out of school and gotten into programming and had successful lives as programmers. Uh, That paradigm has been going on at some level for 20 or 30 years now, um, but I think it's growing. But I'd like, in some ways, and this is kind of the unschooling, but unschooling done by kids, I'd like to empower more kids who want to do that. I've, I've known so many kids who um, were almost suicidal in terms of their hatred and depression of school, just so painful. But again, right now, it's mostly a class phenomenon. So one of the things um, I've wanted to do is to kind of create a system to empower uh, confident, independent young people to, if they want to, drop out of school. And there's a wonderful book called The Unschooling Handbook, How to Drop Out of School and Get a Life. Uh, but I can imagine, especially because of technology, um, creating a framework within which more and more people can do this. And this goes back to the college admissions piece. Once it became clear that all you need to do is do well on a couple of tests and then be spectacular at something you love, if that, if that vision became mainstream, I could imagine it becoming increasingly common for young people. And they don't need to drop out altogether. Maybe they you know, take a class or two, or they take a semester on, take a semester off. I'd love to see young people become much more independent and empowered consumers of education. So instead of this system that you know, forces them to do certain things that they mostly hate and, and that they believe they're told is important, you've got to get education to have a good life. No, you, you have to learn things in order to have a good life. And so it's really important to learn things. But learning things is not the same as seat time in school. And so I'd love to see a mass rebellion on the part of um, adolescents against this, you know, I would say coercive, abusive seat time system and uh, have them all drop out of school and get a life. Maybe that's out there a bit, but uh, hey, I'd love to talk to your father about it. (laughs) I have a feeling this is not our last conversation. Uh, and, and, (laughs) And we've gone over any time constraint that I thought we were going to have today. So why don't we finish there? I want to tell you, I feel like this has been really brilliant. Uh, I really appreciate your perspective. um, And I'm so glad that you were willing to follow up with me. Well, thank you. And and I really am serious about your father. I'm I'm a take action kind of guy. So uh, thank you so much for this conversation, Steve, and put me in touch with your dad. Okay, send me an email, maybe include the Yale guy, and we'll see where we go. Thanks, Michael, so much for taking some more time. Will do. Bye-bye. Bye.